Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The scripture reading this morning is from, taken from Colossians 4, 2-6, which is found on page 985 of your pew Bibles, or it will be behind me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it in thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. You can keep your Bibles open to Colossians 4. A couple of weeks ago, about midway through our Advent series, we finished uh, what has been a two-year journey through the Gospel of Matthew together, looking at what has come to be known as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. From the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew all the way through the end, the predominant theme of that book has been the identity and authority of Jesus Christ as the true King of heaven and earth. We saw as we walked through it how he proved that preeminently through his death and resurrection. And yet as we landed at the end of the book, we saw how he applies his authority ultimately by sending us into the world to make disciples of all nations. Those are our marching orders as a church to help people turn away from sin and to trust in Jesus, to follow him, to find life and joy in his name. And of course, when we looked at that a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about what all of that means and what that kind of looks like for us personally and and as a congregation. And as the new year dawns, we're going to be putting a lot of emphasis, uh, placing a lot of attention on what it means for us as a church to apply that great commission faithfully and practically. And hopefully uh, those of you who are, have been a part of Westgate uh, received a letter from the elders this week uh, via email. If you didn't, there are some copies out in the foyer. I apologize for that. But a letter kind of outlining some of the things we're excited about uh, as we move forward this year in making the Great Commission a key priority for us as a congregation. Part of our vision at Westgate is to cultivate a pervasive culture of life-on-life discipleship aimed at fostering maturity, so spiritual maturity, equipping one another for gospel service and passing the faith on to the next generation. And there are a lot of things that we're already doing with that aim in mind as a church. 
I hope so. Otherwise, we've been wasting a lot of time as a church. Uh, And there are several opportunities that we're excited to see develop in the next year. But the first and foremost thing that must happen if we are to have any hope at making disciples or any success in seeing the lost reached for Christ, if we are to have any lasting growth personally and spiritually, the first and foremost thing that must happen if we are to know God and make him known is that we must devote ourselves to prayer. Prayer is the church's most important work. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I don't know if you can bring my volume up a little so I can talk less loudly. And I think it'll be better for all of us, frankly. Perfect. Thank you, David. Now, when it comes to the subject of prayer, uh, I have to admit I'm not particularly excited to preach on prayer. Not because it's so hard to understand or because it's not very important. It's critically important for us. I'm not excited because I don't feel particularly qualified to preach on prayer. I don't feel like this is a strong point in my own life. Uh, I'm not happy with my prayer life. And I feel like this is a lesson I'm constantly having to relearn over and over and over again. The, the priority of prayer. My own default, personally, is to just kind of presume upon God to show up. Rather than, you know, communing with him and actually asking him, I just kind of assume he's going to take care of these things, and I don't actively seek him out. And frankly, that says something about what or who I'm actually trusting in when I do that. Tim Keller writes in his recent and excellent book on prayer, the Bible is all about God. And that is why the practice of prayer is so pervasive through its pages. The greatness of prayer is nothing but an extension of the greatness and glory of God in our lives. To fail to pray then is not merely to break some religious rule It's a failure to treat God as God. Think about that. The failure to pray is a failure to treat God as God. That's my problem in my prayerlessness. It's a failure to treat God as God. And when I fail to pray, which is far too often, and choose instead to walk in my own power, my own strength, my own direction, according to my own wisdom and ability, and ultimately, therefore, for my own ends, I'm failing to treat God as God. And it's simply unacceptable. I want to change. It's part of why I'm actually excited to preach about prayer, because it forces me to deal with this. I want to change, and my hunch is that I'm probably not alone. In fact, I would be surprised if if there was anyone here who was completely satisfied in their prayer life. I'm not going to ask you for your hands. Don't worry. Keller notes at the beginning of his book, prayer is an exceedingly difficult subject to write about because before it, we feel so small and helpless. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British preacher, uh, once said that he had never written on prayer because of a sense of personal inadequacy in the area. And and so if people like Keller and Lloyd-Jones feel inadequate in the area of prayer, I think it's safe to bet most of us probably do. And yet the point of acknowledging that is not to console each other in our mediocrity. It's to change. We must change. We must pray. I'm increasingly convinced that this is the church's most important work. The Bible tells us to pray about everything. There's no area of life that is off limits or too small to bring to the Lord in prayer. And you think of Philippians 4, 6, a verse that you know, some of us have perhaps memorized. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anything and everything God wants us to bring to him in prayer. But the area that I want to focus specifically on this morning, in light of our recent emphasis on the Great Commission coming out of the Gospel of Matthew, is the call to pray for our mission as a church. If we're going to be faithful to that call, our most important work in it is prayer. And to help us think about that this morning, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. But to uh, start our reflections on prayer on the right foot, let's pray together and ask God to meet us. Lord, we are so utterly dependent on you in every way. And what a grace it is to know that you hear our prayers and that you love to answer them. Lord, as we look at your word, we pray that you would meet us, that you would, as we just sang, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see see you, who you are, what you've done, what you're still doing, with the eyes of faith, Lord, that your spirit would, would give us ears to hear you, and that you would, in fact, be changing our hearts, Lord, as we look at your word. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of Colossians is uh, one of the letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison for preaching about Jesus. And it was written to a young church uh, in the city, ancient city of Colossae, that Paul had actually never met. They heard the gospel through one of Paul's colleagues, uh, Epaphras. And Paul is writing to this church, as he does to many churches, to both ground them in the faith that they have in Christ, but also to guard them from false teaching. There were some among the Colossians who were unconvinced that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were really enough to reconcile sinners with the Holy God. And so they wanted to add to what Jesus had done on the cross. A little pagan superstition here, a little Jewish legalism there, mix it all together, and then we'll actually have an audience with God. 
And so Paul's writing them to assure them of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That he really is preeminent, that he is sovereign over all creation, and that his blood really was enough to cover their sins, to cancel the debt of sin that we have against God and to make peace through his blood shed on the cross. If we will trust and follow him, Paul wants them to be anchored in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. But he also wants them to help them understand what that means for them in daily life, how to apply the truth of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency to how they live, how to apply it personally, how to apply it in their relationships within the church or at home, but also how to apply it in our interaction with those outside of the church, those who don't yet know Christ. And that's what Paul turns his attention to in our verses this morning at the beginning of chapter 4. And the way that I want to organize our time is to let verse 2 kind of shape the discussion. Uh, we're, we're obviously going to look at verses 3 through 6 also. But, but in verse 2, Paul gives us a general call to prayer which he then applies to mission. And he tells us three things about how we should pray in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so continue steadfastly, that's the first thing. Devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, pray loyally. Pray loyally. And then second, Being watchful in it. We are to pray watchfully, expectantly, with both faith and focus in our prayers. And then third, with thanksgiving. We're to pray gratefully as well. So those are the three things we're going to think about. Praying loyally, praying watchfully, and praying gratefully. Our prayers, both generally speaking and as we apply them to our call to make Christ known, must be marked by those three characteristics. And so let's think first about praying loyally. The call to pray loyally, or steadfastly, or with devotion, gets at the heart of why we even pray in the first place. Because God is God, and we are not. That's the first and foremost reason we pray. God is God, and we are not. J.I. Packer writes, in prayer, you ask for things and you give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already and all the good you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of the Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. Think about that. When you're on your knees, you know that you are not the one in control of the world. It is not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves 
and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from his hands. In effect, therefore, what we do when we pray is to confess our own impotence, powerlessness, and God's sovereignty. End quote. And that is, I think, uh, for most of us, what makes prayer so hard. It begins by admitting that we're not in control, after all. That there is someone over us and above us who's stronger than us and wiser than us, someone who is in control of us and the world around us, and that if something is going to happen, it will only happen according to his will and power. That's humbling for many of us. Because we're afraid that if we hand over the reins, our world's going to all of a sudden spiral out of control. If I acknowledge that, that I'm not really in charge. Because I know how to measure performance when I'm in control. And how to get results. And who to blame if something goes wrong. If we pray in this perspective, then we come at it from almost kind of a a neo-paganistic angle where we recognize that there's some sort of higher power at play, but our goal is simply to manipulate that higher power to our own personal ends. So we start bargaining with God. Have you ever done that? Lord, I promise I won't miss church for the next month if you show up and do this. Unless, of course... That bonus comes through a year end and we get to take that vacation. Starting in February, I promise, I will not miss church for a month if you will do this for me. And we bargain. But that's not real prayer, is it? Because it fails to treat God as God. It's kind of making God our little puppet. Real prayer, loyal prayer, begins with humility, even brokenness. Oli Halsby, a Norwegian author, says, As far as I can see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. Or as Jared Wilson has said, When I don't pray, basically I'm saying to God, I got this. I can can take care of this. So we pray loyally because we recognize that God is God and that I am not. And when you think about it, if we're praying to the God of the Bible, think about who we're actually praying to and depending on and entrusting our lives to. Uh, Turn back to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. Verses 15 to 20. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's who we're praying to. Prayer is not messing around. 
It's skipping middle management and going straight to the top with our deepest cares and concerns. Bringing them to the one who can actually do something about them, the one who created all of this that we see and everything we don't see. And yet, even as we bring our concerns to him, we recognize that what he does, he does according to his will and for his glory. And so there's a boldness, but also a humility that comes in praying to the God of the universe. Then look at verse 17. Again, speaking of Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Because Jesus is holding all things together, that means you and I don't have to. Think about that. How freeing that is to recognize he's got this. I don't have to worry with my anxiety and manipulation in order to make things go the way I think they should go. I can trust God to take care of it. And then look at verses 18 to 20 once more, speaking of Jesus. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God was pleased to make himself known to us through his son. He was pleased to reconcile us, to make peace with us through the blood of his son. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, wherein God dealt with the greatest problem in this world, the problem of sin, my sin, your sin, all sin. In Jesus, God has done everything necessary to redeem this fallen world and make it whole again. That's who you're praying to when you pray in Jesus' name. The one person who is actually capable of putting it all back together. Who else is preeminent? Who else is sovereign? Who else is sufficient to take care of everything that's wrong in our lives? You and I cannot do that. Only God can do that. And so, therefore, we pray. We pray. We pray loyally. We pray with consistency, regularity, because we need his grace every day. Prayer should be done regularly, persistently, resolutely and tenaciously, at least daily, even if we don't feel like it. Because even when you don't feel like you need God, you still need him. And we pray loyally, not just with consistency, but with allegiance to our God. Again, recognizing he's God, I'm not. My allegiance, my loyalty belongs to him. Prayerlessness is a failure to treat God as God. And so God calls us to pray loyally. He also calls us to pray watchfully. And that's our second point, again in verse 2. 
chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. What does Paul mean by watchfulness here? Some suggest that he's talking about praying with an eye toward Christ's return. Uh, always praying with, in light of his, of his return. And Well, that's a good thing to do, and, and we're encouraged to be watchful for that. Several places in Scripture, you think of Matthew 24 or, or 1 Thessalonians 5, that seems overly specific for the context here in Colossians. I think Paul is simply telling us to pray with alertness and expectation. In other words, don't be asleep in your prayer. Think about what you're praying. Pray with focus and watch for God to show up and answer that prayer. Pray with faith. Praying watchfully means praying with focus and with faith. And so what should we focus on in our prayers then? What is it that ought to guide us For most of us, uh, the two things that that shape our focus are our desires and our circumstances. That's what guides most of what we pray for. We want things, often good things, and so we ask for them. A promotion, a new job, a good grade on the test, a lead role in the play. Or... We're faced with certain circumstances that we would like God to change. Financial difficulties or health challenges. A child who sleeps through the night at least once a week. Something like that. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with praying for our desires or praying about change in our circumstances. God wants us to pray about those things. He wants us to bring every care to him in prayer. And, and as you think about Jesus' model prayer uh, in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, it includes things like praying for daily bread or against evil. And so praying for provision and circumstances and so on, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But if that's the only thing that guides our prayer life, our desires, our circumstances, or or the desires and circumstances of someone else, if that's the only thing that guides our prayer life, then we're missing out on most of what God calls us to in prayer. It's interesting that um, of all of the Apostle Paul's letters that we have in Scripture and all of the prayers that he includes in his letters, not once does he pray for a change in circumstance for his church, for the churches. The thing that we pray for most often is entirely absent from Paul's prayer life for the churches, at least the ones we have recorded. And again, there's nothing wrong with praying for those things, but it's interesting, isn't it, to think about, okay, so what is he praying for then? Paul focuses his prayers on asking that the gospel of Jesus bear fruit in the lives of the churches regardless of the circumstance. That's what Paul's heart is after. To see change, but hearts changed more than just circumstances changed. Listen to his prayer at the beginning of Colossians in chapter 1. Chapter 1, 9 through 12. 
And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. To know the mystery of Christ in his supremacy and sufficiency. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul is praying for change, but he's far more interested in our hearts being changed than our circumstances being changed. He wants to see hearts tuned to the knowledge of God and his will. Hearts that bear fruit in obedience, that grow in knowledge of God, that depend on God, that give thanks to God, that hope in God. That is Paul's desire for the churches he's ministering to. For the church in in Colossae and to all of the churches. And his desire does not stop there. He wants the hearts of those who do not yet know Jesus, the hearts of those who are still outside of the church, he wants those hearts to change as well. To experience that same knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how he applies his instruction to pray in chapter 4. This is one of the ways he wants us to focus our prayers in praying for the mission of the gospel. Which finally brings us to verses 3 through 6. So after he lays out this general instruction to pray in verse 2, he then makes a specific request, namely for his own mission to make the gospel known. Verse 3. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So because Paul recognizes that God is God and he is not, even when it comes to the salvation of others, he asks for prayer for his mission. Tom Wright explains it. He can talk all he likes, but unless God opens the door for the word to go through, he will simply be making a useless noise. Paul was under no illusions. You can never take it for granted. The door doesn't open automatically. What opens the door again and again is prayer. It's prayer. Yet even as he asks them to pray for his own mission, he reminds them of their mission to make Christ known as well in verses 5 through 6. Conduct yourself wisely toward outsiders. That is, those outside the church, those outside of faith in Christ. Conduct yourself wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We too are entrusted with the great commission, the call to make Christ known. 
to engage our friends and our family and our neighbors who don't yet know the Lord with wisdom and urgency and with the gracious speech of the gospel to make Christ known. And if Paul asks for prayer for his own mission, we're foolish not to pray for ours as well. If Paul needs us, you know, needs the Colossian church to pray, then we need to pray for what God has asked us to do too. And that's because as we pray for our mission, we are acknowledging once again that God is sovereign even over the salvation of others. And yes, we have a responsibility to proclaim, to explain the message of Jesus. And people have a responsibility to respond in faith, to turn away from sin and trust Jesus. But none of that is going to happen unless God shows up. Again, J.I. Packer captures this tension, I think, very helpfully. He says, it is right to want one's presentation of the gospel to be as clear and forcible as possible. If we preferred that converts should be few and far between and did not care whether our proclaiming of Christ went home or not, there'd be something wrong with us. But it is not right when we take it on us to do more than God has given us to do. It is not right when we regard ourselves as responsible for securing converts and look to our own enterprise and techniques to accomplish what only God can accomplish. To do that is to intrude ourselves into the office of the Holy Ghost and to exalt ourselves as agents of new birth. Only by letting our knowledge of God's sovereignty control the way in which we plan and pray and work in his service can we avoid becoming guilty of this fault. For where we're not consciously relying on God, there we shall inevitably be found to be relying on ourselves. And the spirit of self-reliance is a blight on evangelism. End quote. So if we love our friends and our family, and we want them to know Jesus, if we want to share Christ and see them trust in him and be changed, if we want to be found faithful before God and his call for us to make disciples, we must devote ourselves to prayer. It is our most important work. Praying watchfully means that our prayers must focus in part on the mission God has given us to make disciples right here in the Metro West. It also means that we pray with faith, that when we ask for God to change hearts, we watch for him to show up. The results are in his hands. But isn't that the best place for them to be? Frankly, that's, that's the only way I can stand up here week after week and proclaim the word of God, knowing that the results are in God's hands. If it was on me to see a heart change for the gospel, I would have been crushed under the weight a long time ago. But that's exactly where we need to put the results in the one who actually has the power to do something about it. 
So we pray with humility and boldness. We pray with faith and focus. And finally, and much more briefly, we pray gratefully. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. Paul makes a lot of gratitude in the book of Colossians. We pray gratefully because it's by God's grace that we even have an audience with the Father to begin with. Only through the work of Christ on the cross are sinners like us able to approach a holy God and not only be spared from utter destruction, but actually invited to bring our deepest cares and concerns before a loving Father. And we pray gratefully because our Father loves to answer our prayers. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do we believe that when we pray for the lost? If we believe that, would we pray more often? And if we prayed more often, would we see God using us more consistently to make his name known? To say that prayer is the church's most important work is perhaps a bit of hyperbole. Um, I mean, how do you rank the importance of God's commands? You know, Bible reading or evangelism or, or you know, prayer. But what I mean is simply this. Since the only way that gospel change can happen is if God shows up, and since the way we express our dependence on God and thereby treat him like God is through prayer, nothing we do in his service will amount to anything if we are not first and faithfully praying. That's why it's our most important work. And moreover, it's, it's easy to serve somebody without praying for them or to preach without praying or to even talk to others about Jesus without praying. It is much, much harder to pray for someone's needs and then not serve them if given the opportunity or to pray for somebody to know Jesus and not share the gospel with them if given the opportunity. Prayer aligns our hearts with God's heart and moves our hearts in the direction of God's will. And if it's God's will for us to love others and share the gospel, then as we pray, we're going to find ourselves taking God at his word and doing what he calls us to do. We've seen an example of this uh, in our prayer team right here in in this church. Every Thursday morning, Bruce and Karen Daggett open their home to everyone in the church, but 
uh, open their home for people to gather and pray. And those who uh, are consistently a part of that group, as you can imagine, have become fairly tightly knit. When you pray together, that happens. But more than that, as they've set their hearts to praying for lost friends and neighbors, time and, a, time, and time again, they've found themselves serving and sharing with those very friends and neighbors. Prayer for mission begets service in mission. And that's something that we want to see on a broader scale in this church. Now, everyone's invited to that Thursday morning prayer, but um, we recognize not everyone is available Thursday mornings. And so in your worship folder this morning, there's an insert. Hopefully you saw it. It's an invitation, really, to come together monthly and pray for the mission that God has given us to make disciples of Christ. Now, you do not have to wait for that meeting to pray. Hopefully you won't. You just do it. But there's something that happens when we get together and do that. And so we want to make that a priority this year. It's not the only opportunity to pray, but it is a priority that, that we want to take God seriously in his call and take our dependence on him seriously in coming before him regularly in prayer, specifically for the lost. That's what this prayer meeting is about. Uh, we still love to pray for circumstances and for needs. And, and we do that in all sorts of venues. We, every Sunday as we gather, you know, part of the pastoral prayer is bringing the needs of the congregation before our Father. So we're not going to not do that. But this meeting is more specific. The goal is to pray loyally and watchfully and gratefully for the mission God has given us to make disciples. To pray with focus and faith that God would open a door for his word here in the Metro West. That his spirit would go before us and open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears that they might hear the spirit calling. That men and women would see clearly the ugliness and danger of sin and be compelled by the love of Christ who has dealt decisively with that sin. And to pray that God would use us in that process to make his name known. That's what we want to pray for. We want to pray specifically for friends and family and neighbors who don't know the Lord. That men and women would be snatched from the gates of hell and know the everlasting joy of being reconciled to God. And I want to ask you to join me in that prayer. To join together to pray for God to show up. He is sovereign. He is supreme. Jesus' blood is sufficient. But we need him to show up. And so we must pray. And as we close this morning, I want to invite you to pray right now. If you are a believer in Jesus, think of three people you know who don't yet know the Lord. Pray for them this morning. 
easiest application you'll ever get from a sermon. Doesn't have to be a complicated prayer. Simply something like, Gracious Father, open their eyes so that they can see you and trust you and find life in your name. Give me an opportunity to share with them, Lord. Change their hearts. Save them. Just pray for three people. If you do not know Jesus personally, whether you've grown up going to church but never really taken your sins seriously and and, and seen your need for the Savior, or perhaps you're just kind of visiting and checking this Jesus stuff out, I invite you to pray as well this morning. Ask God to show himself to you. Ask him to show you your sin, the ways that you've let him down, but then ask him to show you his son, your savior, who's paid for your sin, that you might be forgiven and have life. Ask God to show up in your life. He loves to answer that prayer. And so let's pray together quietly, and then I'll close us in a moment.